I've, I've been tasked this morning uh, or this afternoon with getting into a bit of what does it mean to commune with the Holy Trinity and to do so really um, to, to a large degree from the perspective of John Owen. But let me say this, I'm not a John Owen expert. I want to put that out there first. I'm an admirer and a student. I would say that it took me, um, and I'll tell you more about him if you're not aware of who he is, but it took me a good two to three hundred pages of reading his material before I felt like I even began to understand him. So um, he was a a, a scholar in Latin as well as English, and he wrote in a Latin style in English, um, which makes him notoriously difficult to read for people. So um, if you want to read him, there's about 24 volumes he's written that are out there. He's been dead for, you know, nearly 400 years. But there's about 24 volumes out there. If you want to start reading him, I just want to tell you this. It's going to take you a long time to understand how to read him, but it's worth the effort. Once you've read him long enough, you wonder, why do you read anybody else? Just read the Bible and read him. That's how you start to feel. But like I said, it took me two to 300 pages of reading him before I finally said, oh, okay, I understand what he's talking about now. So um, I would encourage you with that. Let me pray, and we'll jump into this session. Father, we are thankful for your word and just the privilege that we have to spend some time on your word and to consider historically some of the development of the doctrine of the Trinity um, in the sense of the church's understanding and language for trying to understand who you are as one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that um, we would be fearful to speak untruly about who you are utter some error with regard to your character and being. Father, that we would also be fearful of speaking of you without a proper sense of the gravity of who it is of whom we are speaking. We would not use your name in vain. That as we spend time hearing from the scriptures and and hearing John Owen's own reflections on those scriptures, that that your son would be exalted in that, that we would come to understand better the love that you, Father, have for us and the comfort of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm thankful we're being pressed this weekend to consider the Trinity. It's not something we're often enough pressed to think about. The doctrine of the Trinity, I think it's a great topic. Frankly, you could make it a conference every year just on the doctrine of the Trinity. You would never even come close to a to exhausting the topic, um, nor would you move far from the center of what Christianity is. It was really attending a conference on the Doctrine of the Trinity in 1998, um, in which I was privileged to listen to great teaching on the Doctrine of the Trinity that my own life was changed. Let me tell you a little bit about that. Um, I'm, I'm originally from Bakersfield, born and raised. I love Bakersfield. I would love it if Jesus' throne just descended on Bakersfield and the new heavens and new earth were here. Um, most people don't have the same affection for this place that I do. Uh, that makes me a bit, a bit unique in that regard, um, but there it is. I love this place. Um, but I was born and raised here. I actually went to high school at this high school we're in, um, though I would not have been talking at all about the same subjects I'm currently talking about in these buildings when I was here in high school. But I went, um, came out of college, and my wife and I were both high school, school teachers. She taught elementary school, and I taught high school. And I was teaching at South High, actually, 
and I had a student um, come up to me. This would have been in the early part of the fall of 1998. I was helping with the Bible club, and one of the students of South High came up to me and asked me a Bible question. And he said, uh, hey, Mr. Vegas, I know you're a Christian on campus, and, and you're a teacher, and so I, I'm trying to understand this thing about the Bible. And it was basically about the prosperity gospel. What do you think about the prosperity gospel, essentially? And at the time, I just said, well, I, th- I think it's wrong. And he said, well, why? Can you show me in the Bible? And I, I remember shamefully looking at the student and saying, ah, hmm, no, <laughs> I really can't. And he said, you don't know where stuff is in the Bible? Really? I said, no, I'm not very familiar with my Bible, actually. And he, I remember the student looking at me, 16-year-old kid, looks at me dead in the face and says to me, well, if you're going to present yourself as a Christian teacher on this campus, don't you think you ought to know more about your faith? And I looked at him and I said, yes, yeah, 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 I think I should. And then I remember looking at him saying, do you you know where I might do that? (laughs) Where I might learn more? And he, he said to me, he says, I don't know, go ask your church. And I told him, well, that's the problem. I, I, I've become this ignorant at the church I've been at, right? I've not been taught anything there. And uh, so he said, well, I, I just, just think about it. So I, I went that weekend at church, and uh, a local pastor was taking a group. I found out about a local pastor who was taking a group of people down to a conference in Los Angeles. Um, the local pastor's name is Brian Murphy. Some of you may know him. He's a pastor of Living Grace Church. He was taking a group to a conference in Los Angeles. He said, we're going to this Bible conference, and it was called Ligonier. Have you guys heard of that before? And I th- it sounded like a disease to me. Right? What's a Ligonier? It's something you catch, not something you go to. So he said, no, it's, it's down there in L.A. And so I said, okay, um, I, it's a Bible conference. I'm going to ask him if I can go. And so I went up to Brian and said, hey, can I go to this conference with you and your group? And he said, sure. So it was being held at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, John MacArthur's church. And uh, the speakers there were um, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and Sinclair Ferguson and Jerry Bridges, all these guys. I had never heard of any of them, not one of them. And I remember walking in this conference, loads of people there at this church campus and sitting in the session, and it was all on the Trinity. And, and uh, something I'm going to, it's, it's the doctrine, really largely the doctrine of perichoresis, which they didn't use that word, but I'm going to define it for you later, right? And, and I came to later understand the doctrine of perichoresis changed my life. But I remember sitting there listening to this teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity, and um, I was shaken. I wondered um, why I hadn't heard any of this, what, what, why I was being presented with something that almost seemed like a different faith than what I was familiar with at the time. Um, they were showing it to us right in the Scripture, though, relentlessly taking us through the Scripture, showing us, and um, it was like I had never read the text before, and, and then I reminded myself I really hadn't ever read the text before. So the... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I sat through it, and I remember going out to the bookstore because they set up these nice bookstores. And so I went out to the bookstore, and they had seminaries being advertised there. And I didn't know what a seminary was. Um, I, I mean, I was really ignorant. I couldn't tell you fundamentally just between Malachi and Matthew, frankly. I just remember I saw a seminary advertising there, 
a few of them. And so I walked up to the booth and I said, I'm sorry, I mean, you have to pardon my ignorance, but, but what is a seminary? And they said, well, it's a place where men come to train to be pastors. And I said, really? They said, yeah. I said, Can, do you have to be a pastor to go there? I mean, what if I don't want to be a pastor? I just realize that I'm so ignorant about everything I'm learning here and I want to learn more. Can I still go to a seminary just to learn more? And they, they said to me, Sure, yeah, we, and I just realized, they'll always take your money. So, the, you know, you're paying tuition, yeah, come on, you know. So I, uh, um, I ended up applying and going to seminary, and I, I, to show you how ignorant I was, I told my wife, my, my first class I was showing up was, was New Testament Greek. It was just called Greek. And so I, I got the books, and I walked into the classroom, and I sat there, and the professor stood up front, and he says, um, to the class, he, he, he says, the reason that we're so focused on you learning languages like Greek and Hebrew is because the New Testament was written in Greek and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And it, for me, the light bulb, oh, I was wondering why in the world they're expecting me to take this class. Why do I want to learn Greek? But so this, this was news to me. But that was the beginning of my hunger at this conference in 1998, learning about the Trinity completely changed me. I didn't go to seminary when to be a pastor, but I wanted to know the word. I wanted to know this God whom I had learned about here and who I wasn't being taught about before that. And I wanted to learn um, so intensely. And then I wanted to tell other people because all my friends and neighbors, all my even Christian friends were completely ignorant about the same stuff I was ignorant of. And I thought I need them to know. And so that ends up, I find out, that ends up leading you into teaching and eventually, in my case, into pastoral ministry. And I think it's appropriate that we're considering the doctrine of the Trinity, um, and in my case, that we were considering such a pivotal time in my life. Um, I know that I was called to ministry there. I sometimes wonder if I didn't get saved at that conference. Um, but my life radically changed. And, and I, I think it's appropriate that it was the doctrine of the Trinity because, frankly, the Trinity is the most practical issue in your life. Knowing the Trinity is the most practical, practical issue in your life. The Trinity is the central doctrine of the Christian faith. Our speaker for next week at the conference I'm having, Ian Hamilton, has said that the default reality of the Christian life is the grace and glory of the Holy Trinity. Sinclair Ferguson, a Scottish preacher, has said, to be a Christian is first and foremost to belong to the triune God and to be named for him. Now, what happens at baptism? We're named for the triune God. It's important as a church that we understand that we feel the weight of this doctrine. Um, I don't know, how many of you guys have heard of St. Augustine? Anybody here heard of him? Okay, so St. Augustine, um, who is probably outside of, we might say, Jesus and Paul, probably the most pivotal, pivotal figure in Western history, in Western civilization, um, upon whom some scholars will say all of Western civilization after him is a footnote on him. Um, St. Augustine said this, in the end, it all comes down to a correct description of God. In the end, it's what it all comes down to. Do you get God right or not? Yet in contemporary evangelicalism, frankly, we give little thought Little thought to the most central of our doctrine of our Christian confession. Very little thought to it. Um, how many of you guys are familiar with Athanasius? Some of you are familiar with 
Augustine. Athanasius, a little less known, ought to be more known. He's a fourth century, what we call kind of an early church father who fought for the doctrine of the Trinity. And if you're not familiar with the history of the fourth century, there was a battle between the Arians, who would be roughly akin to Jehovah's Witnesses today. Arians essentially would say um, that Jesus is not God. He's, he's like God, but he's, he's a little lower. He's kind of a God. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses kind of take a similar tack today. But there was a battle between the Arians and what we might call, and what we should say, the Orthodox Christians. And this war was occurring in the 4th century, and they were, um, at different points in the 4th century, friends with the Caesar of Rome. And Athanasius, at one point, really gets in engaging this fight. He is a bishop from North Africa, from the Alexandria area of North Africa, and he gets in this fight, and it gets over these, these two words. You guys are probably not familiar with these, but the words are homoousia or homoousia. Okay, homoousia is same usia substance, same substance. Homoousia is similar substance, and that's what they fight over. So what's the difference? You hear the difference? Homoousia, homoousia. What's the difference? A diphthong. Is it O-U or O-I? You think the whole world hung on a diphthong in the 4th century. And Athanasius went into exile for 30 years over a diphthong because it means everything. Are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit the same substance? Or are they similar substances? 30 years. In fact, he fought that fight so much that they had a Latin saying, Athanasius contra munda, contra mundum Athanasius. Athanasius against the world, the world against Athanasius. Stood alone for some time. Later, we have a thing called the Athanasian Creed that was written. Might surprise you what the Athanasian Creed says. I want you to hear the detail with which they're defending the doctrine of Trinity. I won't read you the whole thing. I'll read you a significant portion of it, though. Listen to this. Whoever will be saved, whoever will be saved, before all things it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Now, Catholic, they mean universal, not the Roman Catholic Church. They mean the universal faith. They hold the Catholic faith. Which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this. What is it? That we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, And such is the Holy Spirit, the Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensible, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Spirit is almighty. And yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. You guys picking up the pattern? 
So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. And yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. Wow, I mean, they're being pretty dogmatic, aren't they? Pretty redundant, pretty clear. Listen to what they go. So are we forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of... None, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created, nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, none is a four or after another, none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must think of the Trinity. Hear that? question is, is that biblical? Is that biblical? I think, I think Steve Lawson did a fairly significant job last night of showing you just from one passage that is biblical. Uh, but is it true that to know the Trinity is to know salvation. Let me press into another passage really quickly. Look at John chapter 17. Uh, John 17 is a significant passage in this discussion, all of John 17. But I just want to look at verse 1 through 3. It's high priestly prayer of Jesus. If you're familiar, if you're not familiar with the gospel of John, John chapter 14 through John chapter 16 is really um, the longest continuous teaching on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, um, those three chapters, here we have Jesus beginning to pray. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life. What comes next ought to capture us, right? This is eternal life. Okay, what is it? Isn't that the central question of our lives? We're going to die, aren't we? You are all going to die. You understand time is hunting you down, right? If you will, death is on your heels, and every second of the clock ticking, death gets that much closer, right? Your enemy will overtake you with regard to your physical body, But listen, if you're not a believer, he'll overtake you for eternity. So what is eternal life? And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. In the context of John 14 through 17, we also know this, it would include the Holy Spirit. What is eternal life? That you know this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want to take you a a step further, though. Salvation is not only that we are saved by the three members of the Trinity or the three persons of the Trinity. It is that we are united to the Lord, and thus we have fellowship with or communion with the triune God. As John says, um, we know him. We know him. We come to know him. John, 1 John 1, 3, John gets at this again there when he makes this statement. 
that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship, our communion is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, we can actually know the triune God. We can know him. We can know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And our communion with the triune Lord is the greatest privilege of the Christian life. Here's why I contend that you all ought to take time to read John Owen's Volume 2 in the Banner of Truth series. It's called On Communion with the Holy Trinity. It's about 400 pages. It'll be the hardest reading you've probably done in your life. It'll wreck you for 100 pages because you won't understand it. You'll have to go back and start over, but eventually you'll start to get it. But John Owen takes nearly 400 pages just to explicate from the Scriptures what does it mean to commune with the Holy Trinity. What does that mean? What does it mean? Because that is our highest privilege. We know him. We know him, and so we get to fellowship with him. It's not just that we're forgiven of our sins and declared righteous, as good as that news is. It's not this that we have a legal status of adoption as sons, as good as that news is, or that we're co-heirs, but it's that we get God. We get to commune with him. So here's my contention. If we come to understand that knowing the triune Lord is salvation, that communion with him is our great privilege, and if we come to know what it means to really commune with him rightly, then we can sort of clean up the mess that evangelicalism has really wreaked on our lives with regard to our spirituality. Right? Spirituality is quite the popular term, isn't it? But there's kind of a mess in our lives with regard to it. Sinclair Ferguson, speaking about our day, said this, We live in an age that stresses practical Christian living. We have little patience for the difficult doctrine of the Trinity. And as a result, our spirituality, our practical Christian living, is a mess. It's often a mess. There is really two errors that we tend to get caught up in. In some ways, they're one and the same error, but I don't have time to spend on teasing all that out for you. But there are really two, if you will, for most of our minds, what we might see as two contrasting errors. One is the error of rationalism. You guys know what rationalism is? I'll try to, it's, it's where you're, essentially rationalism is where your mind is the ultimate standard of all truth. What I think is the ultimate standard of all truth. But I want to press into that a little bit more than that. The other is mysticism. Is mysticism. Mysticism is often what we run into when we realize that our minds are failing us, and so we just try to have some kind of experience with God. Charismatics or mystics seek an experience of the Spirit divorced from the Scriptures and the revelation of the Son. In other words, those who are in the mysticism category are asking the question, how do I have an experience of the Holy Spirit that is not that is not attached to the scriptures, that is divorced from the Son. Rationalists on the flip side seek an understanding of the Word. They want to know the Bible, all its data, divorced from the Holy Spirit and His work of uniting us to Christ in fellowship with the Son. I just become, uh, I fall into one of two errors. You guys see the extremes of this. I fall into the error of wanting to have these sort of divine experiences divorced from knowing the 
Spirit's word. I want to commune with the Holy Spirit, but not actually hear what he has to say in his word. This is God-breathed word. That's one error. You guys follow me on that? One track we run down. The other track, however, is I want to know all the details of this divorced of the Holy Spirit. It's just dry, academic inquiry. Divorced of communion with the Son. To pursue the charismatic error of divorcing the Holy Spirit from the Word and His work of applying Christ to us is to engage in a kind of spiritual enthusiasm that's radically unbiblical. On the flip side, to engage in the rationalist kind of spirituality, which attempts to know the Word apart from the Spirit, is equally damning. And here's the thing. Both errors are doctrines of devils. Both are. To think that you can know communion with God apart from the revelation of His Son in the Scriptures, or to think that you can know the Scriptures apart from communion with God in the revelation of His Son, either way is a doctrine of a devil. Both of them divorce the Spirit from the Bible and ultimately from communion with God. And, and while I could spend time beating up on the charismatics, that would be easy, low-hanging fruit, because you see error there, Let me beat up on you guys instead, because most of you aren't them. And and, and here's the thing. It is true that we contend in, in these kinds of circles toward rationalism, toward a kind of disengaged, dry study of the Bible. Is that true? You ever find that in your lives? The tendency to pursue a Christianity that's wholly intellectual, to know about God, but to not know Him, is a demonic tendency. It's a demonic tendency. Listen how John Owen, the 17th century Puritan, who I'm speaking about here a little bit more in a few minutes, speaks at that. He says this, He that would utterly separate the Spirit from the Word had as good as burn his Bible. The bare letter of the New Testament will no more generate faith and obedience in the souls of men, no more constitute a church among them who enjoy it, than the Old Testament does so at this day among Jews. The Word of God, devoid of the Holy Spirit, changes no one. Many are here are likewise aware that in the, and you, you may be aware that in the 17th century they started writing confessional statements. Are you guys familiar with those? You may have heard, how many people have heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith? So it's, a pre, it's, the, it's really the confessional statement of what we might call um, the Scottish Presbyterians, the English Presbyterians. Mo- most people are a little less aware of the document that comes a little bit later called the Savoy Declaration. The Savoy Declaration is, was written by the Congregationalists, another group of nonconformist Puritans who who didn't like Presbyterian church government, and so they wrote the Savoy Declaration. John Owen is one of them. And then you had, a little bit after that, what's called the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which was written by the particular Baptists in England. Um, it's just, that's, the, that's the confessional statement that my own church uses. But the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration, and the London Baptist Confession of Faith are basically identical, identical documents with differences in only a few areas. One of the differences being baptism, and one of the differences being church government. Those being the two primary differences. However, there was a change 
in the theology proper section. You guys know what I mean by theology proper? The doctrine of God section. There was a change in the doctrine of God section of chapter 2 that addresses the Trinity. When John Owen got a hold of the Westminster Confession, he made a change to it that was impacted by his book that he wrote called Communion with God. And he made the change to it, not really, if you will, to the doctrine of the Trinity per se, but he really made an addition. What you might not know is that when he made this addition, it was based upon the book he had written, Communion with the Triune God. I want you to hear it. Chapter 2 is a long chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith and later in the Savoy Declaration and London Baptist Confession just laying out the character of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, etc. But when you get to the end of chapter 2, Owen decided to add this to end the chapter on the Trinity. Here's what he added. Which doctrine of the Trinity, notice he's been talking about the doctrine of the Trinity for this whole chapter has been talking about that. Which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon him. In other words, what Owen realized is we have this glorious doctrine of the Trinity, but we've made no application of it to the Christian life. And so we need to do that. John Owen could not have us study the Trinity or orthodoxy. He couldn't have us study that unless we did it doxologically. In other words, unless it led us to praise or glory of God. You cannot, even in his mind, consider the Trinity... The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God, one God, three persons, three persons, one God. You can't even be considering him or uttering him in a non-doxological way, in other words, without praising him, without violating the third commandment. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. That isn't just cussing. You understand that? When you open your mouth to sing of the character of God, or when you open your mouth to pray about who the Lord is, or when you open the scriptures to study his word, or when you stand up in a pulpit particularly and pretend, if you will, to play the mouthpiece of God, when that happens, if you are not in those moments praising God, not just mouthing words, but praising him, if doxology isn't happening in your heart, For Owen, you're violating the third commandment. You're taking the Lord's name in vain. You can't have, in his mind, a dry discussion about the Trinity. It's impossible to have an, if you will, affectionately cold discussion about God three in one. He is God. He's not an academic subject. He is, what, the center of our worship. He is the one with whom we have fellowship. You know... Some of you know my wife. Some of you know about my wife. But I know my wife. I know my wife. When she, if, she, if she precedes me in death, when she precedes me in death, sounds ominous, doesn't it? If, if she precedes me in death, if she precedes me in death, I'm not going to merely stand before her grave in an unaffected way and describe her. You know, Teresa was five foot nine and, and thin, and she had brown eyes and brown hair, and she was a mom and a teacher, and, and uh, she liked to decorate, and she was pretty quiet if you didn't know her. And these are the facts you need to know. She grew up in Exeter, California. Like, you, that doesn't generally what you're going to do as a husband, standing over your wife's grave. You know her. So you're going to eulogize her, as Steve said last night, right? You're going to. Talk about and praise the one you know. I don't just know about her, I know her. I'll likely weep and laugh as I 
discuss this incredible woman I know, as I think about the stories with her that made me laugh, as I think about the stories with her that, that make me, will make me deeply miss her, that's the experience that's going to happen, right? I'm not going to just describe her like some disaffected person who doesn't know her because I know her. I will eulogize her. And this is true with our triune Lord. Our goal is not to describe him accurately. Our goal is to know him. We want to know him. To return to my earlier story, when I sat at the Ligonier Conference in 1998 and learned about the Trinity, I told you that the doctrine I learned there, I later learned, was called perichoresis. Isn't that a nice word? You guys ever heard it? It was a word used by um, the Greek church fathers. Um, and, and what does it mean? I was in awe of this triune Lord, but what is perichoresis? Perichoresis is a word that, that was used by the early church fathers on the, really on the eastern side primarily, though it comes into the west as well. It can be defined this way, as co-indwelling, co-inhering, or mutual interpenetration. Now, what does that mean? Alistair McGrath, a historical theologian, describes the doctrine this way. It allows for the individuality of the persons to be maintained while insisting that each person shares in the life of the other two. An image often used to express this idea is that of a community of being in which each person, while maintaining its distinctive identity, penetrates the others and is penetrated by them. Sinclair Ferguson, he defines it this way. The God of the Bible is the living God, living in himself, loving within his three persons, expressing all his attributes in the dynamic interplay of Father with Son, Son with Spirit, Spirit with Father, Father and Son with Spirit, Spirit and Son with Father, Father and Spirit with Son. The moving in and out as in a choreographed dance of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in an eternal, self-sufficient, inner cosmos of love and holy devotion and in an endless mutual knowledge. Hear that? In other words, the idea is is that you have one God, three persons, but those three persons are not three parts. It's like over here you have the Father part and then the Son part and the Holy Spirit part. They mutually indwell one another so that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, mutually indwelling one another. It was learning that the Father and Son and Holy Spirit are three in one, one in three, in an eternally loving, co-indwelling relationship, and that they decreed before the foundation of the world out of the overflow of their love to create us to know them, and then after our fall to redeem us to know them. That radically reshaped my understanding of Christianity. It's what gripped my heart, led me to seminary and pastoral ministry. This mystery of God is one in three and three in one who works, think about this, who chooses to work to bring me or you into eternal communion with himself. Think about that. As our speaker said earlier, Chris Mueller, God doesn't need us. In spite of what you hear or would have heard in the 90s if you were watching the sappy, sentimental, touched by an angel, um, which I will shamefully admit I watched, the... (laughs) In spite of what the angels constantly told people, it is not true that God needs you. He didn't create us because he needs us. He created us out of the overflow of his love so that he could set his love on us. 
so that we could enjoy that. I hope the Lord is doing the same for you this weekend. I think you've had able men in the pulpit who are walking you through the word, driving home, not just that you need to understand this doctrine academically, but this is the God we know and worship. The Trinity. Before we move right into Owen's view on communion with him, let me remind you again of the mystery of the Trinity. God reveals himself in creation and in Scripture. In Scripture, supremely particularly in, if you will, the revelation of his son. His revelation of himself, however, in Scripture is always analogical. You guys know what that means, analogical? Our language, in other words, speaks truly of God in Scripture, but it never speaks comprehensively of him. So Calvin actually rightly says that in the Bible, you know this this book that we study, that you have men who you think are quite bright, who spend their entire lives studying this book in its original languages, and who try to interact with all the complex grammatical, syntactical, biblical, theological arguments that are being made here. And you go, man, that guy's a genius. And here's what Calvin has to say about this Bible. He says, the Bible is God stooping down and lisping to us. What does he mean? He's baby-talking us. He's not saying the Bible's less exalted. He's saying, understand how great the God is who reveals himself here. Even in his holy, sufficient, perfect word, he's still baby-talking us because of who we are. We can truly know him, but we can never exhaustively know him. You guys know that? Even when you die and go to heaven, or if... I pray this, Jesus returns first, and we just get right taken up to him. You're never going to know him exhaustively. You're going to learn forever. He's an infinite being. You will learn forever. Ed, Jonathan Edwards makes the argument that actually as you learn eternally about God, the more you know him, right, the greater your joy. And because for eternity you continue to learn about him, your joy increases forever. I think he's right about that. Thus, the biblical descriptions of God tell us the truth, but as we contemplate those biblical descriptions of God, our mouths are often stopped. We know we can go thus this far and no further. Where Scripture speaks, we speak. Where Scripture is silent, so are we. God is one in three, three in one. God is one essence and three in persons. When we speak about his persons, though, I want you to be clear about this. We don't mean the modern post-enlightenment understanding of persons. That is not what the language means. It doesn't mean that each of the persons is its own center of consciousness. Okay? Like they each have their own will and mind and, and, you know, and they're having to work things out among each other and try to figure it out and arguing. That's not what we're talking about. Okay? One will, one mind. The divine being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't divide them into three parts. That would be tritheism. The belief in three gods. And when we're speaking of God being one in essence, we don't mean that the persons are just phases or modes that God goes through. He's eternally one God and three persons, and those three persons interpenetrate and mutually dwell one another. That divine truth is mysterious. In fact, Gregory of uh, Nanzanese, I can't even say his name right. It's like Nazi Anzus, right? It's Anyway, all right. He spoke of the Trinity... In his 40th oratio, if you ever read his writings, are called oratios. In the 40th oratio on baptism, he wrote one on baptism, and he said this, No sooner do I conceive of the one 
than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of them as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking of escapes me. Does you ever have that experience when you're thinking of the Trinity? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one and three, and you just go, I, I'm, what am I even thinking about? It just escapes me now. God is one and three and three and one. When we worship the one, we worship the three. And when we worship any one of the three, we worship the one. Now, it's true we distinguish their works. So we don't say, Father, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Right? That's patropassianism. If you want to read that doctrine, read the shack. Just pick it up and give it a read. Okay? But it's a false doctrine. We're not talking about the Father suffering on the cross for us. The Son did. So we distinguish their works. However, anytime you worship the Son for His work, you're worshiping the Father and the Holy Spirit, aren't you? For the Father sent Him to do that work, and the Holy Spirit empowered Him to it. We're always worshiping one when we worship the three, or the three when we worship one of the three. Listen how John Owen spoke of this. The divine nature is the reason and cause of all worship, so that it's impossible to worship any one person and not worship the whole trinity. The proper and peculiar object of divine worship and invocation is the essence of God in its infinite excellency, dignity, majesty, and its causality as the first sovereign cause of all things. Now this is common to all the three persons and is proper to each of them, not formally as a person, but as God blessed forever. When we begin our prayers to God the Father and end them in the name of Jesus Christ, yet the Son is no less invocated and worshipped in the beginning than the Father, though he be peculiarly mentioned as mediator in the close, not as Son to himself, but as mediator to the whole Trinity or God and Trinity. You hear what he's saying? Just because you start your prayers with Father and end them within the name of the Son, all you're doing is talking about their particular operations or works as persons, but the Son and the Holy Spirit are invocated when you pray Father because you're praying to one God. Now, Jesus said, I, I ask this all the time, how do I pray? How should I address God? Well, I mean, Jesus gives us a fairly good clue when he says, when you pray, do this. Father, right? our Father who art in heaven. So I, I, well, I tend to teach our people, address him as Father. That's how Jesus taught us to address him. I'm not saying it's wrong to address him in any other way. They're all persons of the Trinity. Don't misunderstand me. But you're trying to understand their operations, what they do, what their respective works are. He's the Father. He's the source of creation and redemption. Right? He's the source of it. You address Him as Father. The Son is the mediator. He's the one through whom God created and through whom God redeems. You guys follow me? So you pray in His name. And you always pray by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one, if you will, who assists you in that prayer, who unites you to the Father and Son so that you can pray, so that if you invocate one of them, you always invocate all three. So given the Trinitarian foundation, here's my goal the rest of the time. I want to get you into Owen's understanding a little bit more of the Trinity. So who is Owen and why does he matter? Owen is a 17th century Puritan. If you don't know what a Puritan is, it isn't a name they gave themselves. It was a kind of um, epitaph put on them by people who didn't like Puritans. Right? They wanted to purify the church. Now, today, in conservative Christian circles, we like Puritans, right? 
And we even like it if somebody says, you're like a contemporary Puritan. That was not a compliment in the 17th century, right? So there, did you laugh, Hillary, because you thought, who likes that, Chad? Is that what you thought? The, uh, just a few people I know do. The, uh, um, especially one of my associate pastors. I think he wants to be a Puritan. So anyway, and he's fairly close. John Owen was the son of a Puritan. He was educated at Oxford became a pastor and a scholar. When was he educated at Oxford? John Owen went to Oxford at 12 years old. Um, He already had facility in Latin and Greek at 12. In fact, all of his lessons at Oxford for his bachelor's degree, which he completed when he was 15 years old, all of his lessons, in fact, all dialogue on campus at Oxford had to be done in Latin. He had to give sermons in the Greek language. He was not allowed to interact with his friends on campus in English. He had to interact with them in Latin. He had to give sermons in Latin and, and Greek um, as he was at Oxford, between 12 years old and 15 years old. I want you to stop and think about that, right, and where our education system currently is. Anthony Esselin, who is a um, – that was common. You think John Owen was extraordinary. He was, but it was normal for a 12-year-old to be at Oxford and interacting in Greek and, and, and Latin at 12. That was normal, getting a bachelor's degree at 15, not outside the norm. Anthony Esselin, who is a public intellectual, teaches on the East Coast. He actually said there's only two things wrong with our schools today. He said, and I'm not talking about our public schools. I'm talking about schools today. There's only two things wrong with them. The things that people, the children don't learn there and the things that they do. So (laughs) eventually, as Owen got his master's degree at 19, he started the Bachelor's of Divinity program. So his B.A. and then his master's degree, and they started the Bachelor's Divinity Program, which is a seven-year program. A couple of years into that program, uh, because of persecution that was happening of the nonconformists, uh, the Puritans, if you will, because of the persecution that was happening for that, with them, he had to leave, and he became privately tutored, really, for the rest of his education. He grew um, in his ability to think and teach in a way that became quite remarkable, and he eventually got the notice of Oliver Cromwell. You may have heard of him. Um, and he became a voice in the life of Oliver Cromwell and uh, in the life of Parliament. He actually would preach sermons in the British Parliament. He had left Oxford, Oxford really as one suffering um, under persecution as a Puritan. Oliver Cromwell eventually returned him to Oxford as a, the leader of one of the colleges at Oxford. And he taught there and led the college for some time. He also pastored. He wrote what now comprises 24 volumes. Um, You can buy them from the Banner of Truth. They're quite expensive, but you can buy them. Um, Steve, I told Steve that I was, I was, Schwartz that I was working through um, Owen's works quite a bit this week, about eight hours a day, um, the last few weeks of reading Owen. And and he said, well, you only have a couple hundred million pages to work through, right? And it's true. The guy was voluminous. But what's interesting is that he actually complained toward the end of his life that his biggest regret was his meager literary output. He just didn't do much with his life. He wrote a book review of a guy's book that was 690-something pages as a book review. But he's like, I was so busy with administrative tasks, I had a really meager literary output. He was married twice, his first wife having died. He had 11 children. Ten of them died in childhood. His oldest, his daughter who lived into adulthood, um, lived, got into adulthood, got married 
um, and then in her early 20s went through a tragic divorce. It did happen in the 17th century. And shortly after the divorce, um, she moved home with him, and then she died. So he watched all 11 children and his first wife die. Um, he suffered pretty immensely. He, um, he was friends with John Bunyan. You guys heard of John Bunyan, author of The Pilgrim's Progress? What you might not know is John Bunyan's book, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, was published by John Owen's publisher. Baptists were not in great favor in England in the 17th century. John Owen is the one who befriended the Baptists. He, he is as on the paedo-baptist side, you know, baptizing infants. On that side, the Presbyterian congregational side, he had, he had really befriended the Baptists. The, they called the particular Baptists at the time, the Calvinistic Baptists. He befriended them and uh, befriended John Bunyan. And he went to his publisher and said, hey, I want you to publish John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress. Now think about Owen's own studies and writing he said of Bunyan that when you cut Bunyan, he bleeds Bibline, just bleeds the Bible. He wrote the Pilgrim's Progress, which became the second bestseller in the history of the planet um, outside of the Bible in the English language. Um, he wrote that entirely from prison, and it is a book that bleeds the Bible. I encourage, if you have never read the Pilgrim's Progress, you really should. In fact, I would argue that our generation is greatly diminished by our lack of having read that book. Um, but he asked that they would publish Bunyan's book, and I remember. And as as you read, um, one of the biographers reflects on the fact that that in remembering that Owen uh, went to the publisher and said, "I want you to publish it." And the guy said, "Why? Why do you like this tinker, John Bunyan, so well?" And Owen Owen said, "If I I would exchange all of my learning, all of my learning, to just preach one sermon like that tinker." That's how he thought about Bunyan. He was considered a prodigious intellect in his own day and is still considered today the greatest theological mind in the English-speaking world. He, he's, Owen is. Say, what about Jonathan Edwards? He's considered a great mind, but he's considered to be a dimmer light than Owen um, in the English-speaking world. Charles Spurgeon said this of Owen. You guys heard of Charles Spurgeon before, right? Said this of Owen. It is unnecessary to say that he is the prince of divines. To master his works is to be a profound theologian. Mind you, Spurgeon read them all by the time he was 11 years old. It's another topic. Owen is said to be prolix, but it would be better, truer to say that he is condensed. His style is heavy because he gives notes of what he might have said and passes on without fully, de fully developing the great thoughts of his capacious mind. He requires hard study, and none of us ought to grudge it. To get a picture of John Owen, listen to his last words on his deathbed. Here's what John Owen says just before his death. The long-wished-for day has come at last, in which I shall see that glory in another manner than I have ever done or was capable of doing in this world. How many of you hope you speak that way at your deathbed? Um, you can see Owen's tomb, by the way, in, in Bunhill Fields. I think, I think, one of the speakers. Did Lawson reference Bunhill Fields in the main session, or was that in the Q&A? Q&A. Bunhill Fields is a cemetery for nonconformist ministers just outside of London. They weren't allowed to be buried in the city of London. They were buried outside of it. Um, Bunyan's tomb is the, is the biggest tomb there. It's pretty huge. Owen's is also, however, in that area. That's where he was buried, right across the street from John Wesley's house, actually, which you can also go and see right there across the street. 
What, according to Owen, then, is the basis of our communion with God? That's who he is. What's the basis of our communion with God? Our communion, then, with God, listen to what he says, consists in his communication of himself to us and our returnal. That's just our returns, our reply, if you will, unto him of that which he requires and accepts. Flowing, now hear this, flowing from that union which in Jesus Christ we have with him. In other words, how do we have communion with God? From that union which in Jesus Christ we have with him. It flows from our union with Christ. But how can we as sinners commune with the holy God at all? What fellowship has light with darkness? Listen to Owen says, flowing from that union which in Jesus Christ we have with him. Our union with Christ by the Spirit is solely a divine work and is the ground of all our communion with God. That is fundamental in Owen's thought. The last thing he wrote before his death is a book, it's volume one in the Banner of Truth series called The Glory of Christ. Another one I would encourage you to read, probably wreck you. And then you should read his book on the, on the Holy Spirit. About four or 500 pages on the Holy Spirit. It's the first, by the way, systematic theology of the Holy Spirit written in the history of the church. Full, full and written. And it's quite good. Our union with Christ by the Spirit is solely a divine work. In the, fa- in the love of the Father, in, sorry, in love, the Father sent the Son and reunited him through faith by the Spirit. Is that not what Lawson laid out for us last night? The Father loved us. He sent his Son who did the mediatorial work to unite us to himself. And who, did the, who was the one who applied that to us? The Holy Spirit. Thus, according to Owen in Scripture, it is through Christ that we have fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So how do we grow? Now listen to the first part of the statement again. If union with Christ through faith by the Spirit is foundational to having communion with God, how do we grow in our communion? Our communion then with God consists in his communication of himself unto us and with our return to him of that which he requires and accepts. In other words, he continues to communicate himself to us by his Spirit, and we make returns to him through faith. Owen would say this communication to us and our returns to him regards all three persons of the Trinity. So in communion with God, what he does is he takes um, about 40 or 50 pages to lay out how we commune with the Father. Then he takes probably 100 or better pages, maybe 150, to lay out how we commune with the Son. And then he takes about 100 or more pages to lay out how we commune with the Holy Spirit. He says we commune differently in a sense with all three, though we're always only communing with the one God. That they all act differently, if you will, toward us, respective to their particular operations or works, and that we return things to them in particular ways. And so he lays that out. Understand, though, it's always whenever one person is worshipped, God is worshipped. However, we worship them differently, in, in a sense. So in spite of the mystery which fills our, our, our eyes to the point where the greater part of what we're thinking escapes us, it's still important to emphasize the particular operations of the persons of the triune God. So um, Owen did so by building his book really off of 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which I think was read this morning. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, listen to this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that's the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He wrote like 400 pages on that verse. So um, showing you in Scripture what this means. What he's talking about there is we have one God, three persons operating toward us in different ways. The Father in love, 
the Holy, the Holy Spirit as, if you will, a comforter or fellowship, right, with us. And, if you will, the Son in grace. And what does he mean by that? As our mediator. So we commune with the Father in love through the mediatorial grace of the Son by the assistance, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. And our returns or our response in this are particularly focused on in our loving the Father, in our resting in and receiving the Son, and in our fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit. And so he lays that out for some, in some depth. Now, the conference I have next week, Ian Hamilton is going to actually go over each of those categories. What does it mean to love the Father and the Father to love us, commune with the Father in love? What does it mean to commune with the Son um, in receiving and resting in his grace as our mediator? What does it mean to commune with the Holy Spirit as our comforter? Um, but I, I want to talk about one way that Owen speaks of returning this love. If the Father loves us, and extends grace to us through the mediation of his Son, and then sends the Holy Spirit to unite us to himself and comfort us and cause fellowship with us. The question is, how do we return that to God? How do we love him back? You guys follow me on that? How do we respond? One of the things that Owen talks a lot about, and this is what I want to end with, is, is he, what he calls eyeing the Father, eyeing the Son, and eyeing the Holy Spirit. What does he mean, eyeing? E-Y-E. Like your eye, right? So, eyeing the Father, eyeing the Son, eyeing the Holy Spirit. He's saying we should study Him with great humility and fear and joy. We ought to slow down and meditate on the being and character of God. You may read your scriptures. You might wake up every day and read through the Bible. You might read. I have one guy in the church who reads um, through the Bible He's, he's our only deacon. He reads the whole Bible every, uh, well, four times every year, right? The whole thing, cover to cover, somewhere between 60 and 90 days um, each read through. And one of the things I've, I, I appreciate about that is he's hungry to be in the Word. But it's possible, and I'm not accusing him of this, so please don't misunderstand me. It's possible to read the Bible that prodigiously and never meditate on what it is that you're reading, Right? It's possible just to make God the object of your study and never slow down to commune with him. Do you consider him? Meditate on him. Look long at each person of the Trinity. Do you stop and just meditate on? Do you spend time just meditating on loving the love of the Father for you? You ever stopped and thought about the fact that you know you can never lose the love of the Father? Because think of this, the Father's love has no ending, and it had no beginning for you. Do you follow that? It wasn't like one day the Father said, well, there you are, now I'll start loving you. He loved you before he even created you. You ever stop and think about that? When Paul breaks out and prays at the beginning of Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Right? You guys are stopping thinking about it. He's breaking out and blessing him. Why? The Father, because he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, he goes on in verse 6, he says, in love, verse 6 and 7, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons. In love. What motivated the Father to send Christ? His love. It wasn't that Jesus came and bought the Father off. Like, he just hated you. 
no love for you. And so Jesus came and sort of bought him off. Did Jesus pay the penalty for your sin? Yes. But did Jesus convince the Father to love you? No. The Father sent him because he loves you. Here in his love, not that we first loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation, a wrath bearer for our sin. Do you just sit and contemplate the love of the Father for you? The love of the Son. I mean, really the mediatorial grace of the Son to you. Do you sit and contemplate that? That it's not just that grace is some thing out there, some substance I get some of. Like that's a medieval Roman Catholic view of grace. That grace is doled out like a substance. So that's why, by the way, if you're a Roman Catholic, the Father can bless the water and then it's holy water because what is he doing? He's concretizing grace. It's concretizing in the water and transforming the water because grace is a substance. And he as a priest can mediate that substance. He concretized grace in the substance of the water, and that water then has sanctifying power. But Protestants have never believed that grace, and I don't think Christians biblically ought to ever believe, that grace is a substance that gets doled out. Grace is a person. When the grace of God appeared, what's that referring to in Titus? Jesus. He is the grace of God. The Holy Spirit doesn't just seal you. I want you to stop and hear this. He doesn't just seal you with something. He is the seal. He seals you with himself. He comes in and dwells you, does he not? Do you consider the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, the comfort of the Spirit, and then compare those things to the vain things, if you will, that charm you most? I mean, does it lead you to sing, when I survey the wondrous cross? on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ, my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. I mean, that's that's meditating on Christ as our gracious mediator, isn't it? Do we regularly survey, I, look at the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, the comfort of the Holy Spirit? It's more than just reading your Bibles, folks. It's stopping in prayer and just assessing. Here's who the Father is. Look at who He is in His Word, what He's done. And now I'm going to compare that to what the world offers me. And what the world offers me is nothing in comparison with him. Look at the love of the Father. Stop and look at the mediatorial grace of the Son. Look at what he's done for me in his life and death and resurrection and ascension in his present intercession on my behalf. Look at him. What the world offers me is nothing in comparison. Look at the comfort, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He sealed me. He's united me to Christ and made me an heir of all things, adopted as a son of the Father. Look at his incredible fellowship he has with me. I just need to stop and think about that and compare that with everything the world offers. That's what leads hymn writers to write songs like they do, doesn't it? You read a great hymn and you think, here's a man who's meditated long on the love of the Father, the mediatorial grace of the Son, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, don't you? Do you do that as a 
if you will, a spiritual discipline. You just read over a chapter, say a quick prayer, accidentally tuck in, thanks for the meal even though you're not eating because your prayer life sucks, and then move on. What, I mean, what do you do? That's one sign your prayer life is bad when you find yourself accidentally praying for the meal and you're not eating. <clears throat> Until you do, you will not commune with the Lord or fellowship with him as you hope. You won't grow in holiness as you desire. Our tendency is to look for a shortcut. Our tendency is to pursue an experience or to simply be satisfied with a kind of dry academic reading of the word. You might look for your experience in a big entertaining worship service. You might look for your experience in a real intense Bible study. But if it's not for the purpose of communing with the Lord, it's demonic activity. And when we struggle to joyfully overcome indwelling sin, we tend to practice a kind of asceticism to deal with it, don't we? That's, that's the whole point of Colossians 2, 16 through 3, 4. You know, oh, if I don't touch this, if I don't taste this, if I don't, if I don't engage in this, then, then I'll, I'll somehow avoid that sin and I'll grow in holiness. I, I, that thing there, even though it itself is not sinful, might lead me to sin. So I better stay away from that thing so I don't ever go down that road into sin. Listen, if that's how you make your decision spiritually, then I, I, I just want to stop and tell you, everything in your life can lead you into sin. Everything. In fact, the things that lead me into sin more than anything else are not things like alcohol or temptations, you know, with lust if you will, or any of those things. You know what it is? It's my wife and kids. Not because my wife sins against me. Not because my kids sin against me. They lead me into temptation to sin more than anything else because of my heart's desire to worship them, to put them in front of the Lord. that's, That's what I have to wrestle with all the time. They're good gifts of God to me, aren't they? But they're nothing compared to the love of the Father. If we believe that, we'd have more William Carey's, wouldn't we? But we don't, I think, because we, we find ourselves caught up with, in our thinking, the wrong things. We don't find ourselves heavenly-minded. And we ought to. Isn't that what Paul goes on to say in Colossians 3? What does he say? I set my mind on things above. He's, my life is hid with Christ in God there. I just set my mind there. That's what causes holiness in you. Every, let me, let me read you how Sinclair Ferguson eyes the father. Listen, listen to this. He's talking about Owen's eyeing of the father, but listen to this. Just the father as the, as the one in love. Listen, Owen teaches us to linger over the father's love, to meditate on its multifaceted nature in order to appreciate its wonder. Thus, according to Owen, we must reflect on the love he had for us before we were born and the purposes he then planned for our lives. This divine love stretches back into eternity and downwards into time. Then there is the love that he has displayed in history in doing good to all people. And then there is the love planned in eternity and expressed in Christ that we have now come to experience. It cost him dearly to love us as sinners, for it required his willingness to send his son and give him up to the death on the cross in order to fulfill his purposes of love for us. We know that he loved us 
But more than that, we now experience the love with which he loved us. He loves us with it still. Indeed, the Father himself loves us. What knowledge could be more wonderful than this? The Father comes to make his home with us. Our problem has been that our gaze has been fixed either on our own sin, we are unlovely and unlovable, or like a person with a squint, we have looked past rather than at the love of our Father. Instead, we're meant to fix our eyes on Christ so that they may be raised through him to the Father's love that is demonstrated in him. To change the metaphor, we are to drink so deeply of God's love in Christ that we reach the head of the waters found in the heart of the Father. When the eye of faith sees the Father's love, the mouth of faith will drink deeply of the streams of grace. As we do so, we not only receive his love, but we also find ourselves inevitably, irresistibly returning his love. Do you meditate on the love of the Father? Just think of that. Let, let me hear, let me read you how Owen meditates on the grace of Christ. Right? On the grace of Christ. He nearly sings of Christ's loveliness. Owen writes these long sections, and then he jumps into these digressions. Like digression one. Digression two. Digression two in part two of Owen's book on communion with God is 50 pages. It's just a digression. i got to make a little digression to tell you about something real quick. 50 pages. Anyway, listen to how he, he'll break out like in praise, though. What's great about reading him is it's not dry academic theology. He'll detail very carefully theology, and then he'll just break out in praise. So he's detailing the person and work of Christ, and he starts to sing almost on the page of Christ's loveliness. Here's what it sounds like to meditate on Christ. You ready? And his meditorial grace. Christ is lovely in his person, in the glorious all-sufficiency of his deity, gracious purity and holiness of his humanity, authority and majesty, love and power, lovely in his birth and incarnation. When he was rich, for our sakes he became poor taking part of flesh and blood because we partook of the same, being made of a woman that for us he might be made under the law even for our sakes, lovely in the whole course of his life and the more than angelic holiness and obedience, which in the depth of poverty and persecution he exercised therein, doing good, receiving evil, blessing and being cursed, reviled, reproached, reproached all his days, lovely in his death, yea, therein most lovely to sinners, never more glorious and desirable, Then when he came broken, dead from the cross, then had he carried away all our sins into a land of forgetfulness. Then had he made peace and reconciliation for us. Then had he procured life and immortality for us. Lovely in his whole employment, in his great undertaking, in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, being a mediator between God and us to recover the glory of God's justice and to save our souls, to bring us to an enjoyment of God who were set at such an infinite distance from him by sin. Lovely in the glory and majesty wherewith he is crowned. Now he is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high, where though he be terrible to his enemies, yet he is full of mercy, love, and compassion toward his beloved ones. Lovely in all those supplies of grace and consolations, in all the dispensations of his Holy Spirit, whereof his saints are made partakers. Lovely in all the tender care, power, and wisdom which he exercises in the protection, safeguarding, and delivery of his church and people in the midst of all the oppositions and persecutions whereunto they are exposed. Lovely in all his ordinances. Lovely and glorious in the vengeance he taketh. Lovely in the pardon he has purchased. 
and does dispense in the reconciliation he has established, in the grace he communicates, in the consolations he administers, in the peace and joy he gives his saints, in his assured preservation of them unto glory. What shall I say? There is no end of his excellencies and desirableness. He is altogether lovely. This is our beloved, and this is our friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. That's how he just broke out talking about Jesus. I've gone too long, and I've only begun to scratch the surface. I've only begun to scratch the surface. Do you guys meditate on the love of the Father and on the mediatorial grace of the Son and on the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in this way? Do you even fear to speak of the Trinity because you fear to name God without, A, either getting him right when you name him, or B, having a right heart as you speak of him so you don't speak of him vainly. Do you feel the sense of weightiness and the privilege we have to commune with this God? See, he ought to lead us to worship. We just can't talk about him. It ought to lead us to doxology, to praise, and to proclamation. So with that said, we're going to sing. Bill, you want to come up? We're going to sing the doxology. I have it there on paper in front of you, and then I'll pray. If you haven't sung this, I think most of you are familiar with the doxology. So why don't you stand with us? We're going to sing to this God, the Holy Trinity.